Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for communion. Thank you how it brings us back regularly to what it's all about. That you paid our debt. And Lord, uh, it, it goes so well this morning with the passage that we're looking at. I thank you how you orchestrate everything, the songs, the communion time, the passage of scripture. You're an amazing God. So Lord, help us this morning have our hearts and our minds tuned to, to your word and to letting the Holy Spirit speak to us that we might go out from here today touched by your word, changed to be more like you. We lift up the Rivas family as they mourn the loss of Thelma. They know where she is and they're glad she's there and she's out of pain. But at the same time, they miss her so much. So comfort their hearts. And we pray for Sonako and Sezo. Lord, help Sezo through this physical the struggle that he's going through. Touch his heart, touch his mind, and help him, Lord, to recover. And give Sonico the strength that she needs to be the caregiver, Lord. And thank you for the brothers there that have stepped up to, to help with that. Thank you, Lord. So be with us now as we open your word and speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we have reached the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you're a guest with us this morning, we just go through God's word. We pick a book of the Bible, or I try to pray and ask God which book we're supposed to be going through, and we work through that book. Sometimes it takes us a year or two, but we get through it, and we go on to the next one. So you happen to have joined us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 5. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So because we're taking this, uh, this letter from Paul to the Corinthian church a little bit by bit, paragraph by paragraph, it's, kind of, it's good, to, it's helpful for us to go back and review. So I want to just go over the flow of thought that we have from the first chapter. Paul introduced himself as an apostle called by God, and he referred to the Corinthian believers as those who were sanctified and called to be saints. And we saw how that applies to us as well. We're being called to be sanctified, to be in Christ. And he then praised them for their spiritual progress in all speech and knowledge. 
He, he acknowledged that their spiritual gifts that were being employed were it was helping them to await the return of Jesus. And he declared that God would keep them guiltless until his coming. And that was sure to be a, a real encouragement to them and assurance um, because they're going to need that because now he's going to start addressing the problems in the church. So then he started addressing those problems. The first one was the division that was going on, which sprung up from their preference of which teacher that they followed. Some followed Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Some said, I just follow Jesus, which kind of uh, meant I don't need the teachers. So they divided up into all these groups according to the style they thought best and that, that they thought uh, um, showed their importance in, so, in the way that they selected their teacher. Instead of just focusing on Jesus and what he'd done for them and what he accomplished for them through the cross. Paul addressed their pride by declaring that the preaching of the cross was offensive and it sounded like foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, he said, it is the power of God. The Jews wanted signs and the Greeks sought wisdom, but the wisdom of God in meeting his justice and his love on the cross was the greatest wisdom of all. And the resurrection was the greatest sign ever given. And yet, Jews and Greeks thought a crucified Lord was just foolishness. Nevertheless, Paul focused on it because it is the power of God to save the lost. It shows how superior God's wisdom is to anything man could conceive. And that leads us to today's passage in which we see that Paul rejected using rhetorical styles of, of the time that the Corinthians so frequently used to convey their message and, and to be proud about. He saw that the message of the cross, which he refers to as the mystery of God, was the thing that drew people to Jesus. Verse one, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, Paul starts this thought by reminding them of the relationship that they had with him, a familial relationship, calling them brothers, which in the Greek implies brothers and sisters, equal sons and daughters of God. We've all been adopted into God's family, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I love that verse. Hebrews, that's Hebrews 2.11. And that's so encouraging that the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, as Dan said earlier, who spoke, who is the word, who created all things, is not ashamed to call us brothers. Paul was not ashamed to call them brothers, despite the Corinthians' many problems. And this letter is an appeal from their elder brother, Paul, he did not come to them as a master of rhetoric or, or using the elevated logic or to try to convince or cajole the Christians that Jesus is Lord. He just relayed the simple truth of what God has done through, to, for us through the cross of Jesus. Jesus and Paul's humble manner was a rebuke to their prideful ways. There was plenty of schools of thought in Corinth at the time that packaged their philosophies in, in eloquent expressions of convincing logic. 
The teacher of each group so, spoke so eloquently on their particular topic or philosophy that students would pay the teacher to learn their style of rhetoric. They wanted to be like them, as impressive as them. But Paul would not stoop to trying to use the world's ways to win people over. He believed in the power of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit to be more effective in claiming souls than any of man's persuasive devices. Paul could certainly speak with passion, and the account of his conversion is, is certainly enthralling. He reasoned with some, and he persuaded others, the scripture says, but he never relied on those things as a method or means to win them to Jesus. Um, when I was young, we lived in Scotland, and my father was getting his PhD at Edinburgh University there. And while we were there, um, we heard about this man, Duncan Campbell. Now, I was too little to remember this. I think I was three, two or three years old at the time. And they heard about this famous evangelist, Duncan Campbell, and this huge revival that was happening in the Scottish Hebrides. So they, they went, decided we'd, they'd take the family to see Duncan Campbell preach. And my mother told me she was just really surprised to see him preach uh, because he just simply read through his notes. His eyes were just totally fixed on the message that he'd prepared and written out, and he simply read the message. Now, in America at the time, we were starting to get excited about Billy Graham because he was very expressive and very flamboyant and, you know, he, he just preached with such passion and such power. I, he hardly ever looked at notes. And so they thought, what a contrast. And yet both men were bringing people to Jesus because it wasn't their style. It's the power of the cross. It's the power of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts to convict us. And the style Paul is telling us here is insignificant. It's, it's just the power of the cross. In the 17th, 1750s in America, there was the evangelist Jonathan Edwards. He was responsible for a great awakening in the United States. And he was much like Duncan Campbell in his presentation. You know, uh, some accounts say people were literally clinging to their pews as he preached. And yet he had poor eyesight and, like Duncan Campbell, read his sermon. His nose was down into his notes like this, reading the sermon. But the power of the cross gripped people, and there was a great revival. Faithfulness to the message and faith in the one who gave it was their priority. When God was calling me to preach, I watched different speakers it was the time when the Promise Keepers was uh, beginning, and so I would go to the Promise Keeper events, and they had these powerful, powerful preachers, speakers. But I watched each one carefully to try to see what it was that, that really connected with the people. There were some who used uh, emotional appeal, but it, it didn't seem to last long. And then some spoke with great knowledge of the scripture, but it didn't just didn't seem to have so much life. But what really impacted people was when they heard someone who 
was authentic and sincere. And sometimes they even spoke about their own weaknesses and their own failings and how Christ had dealt with them. And that was the power of the cross came through the life of the, of the preacher. I've, I've, I've heard, and I believe it's true, you can't call people to a higher place than you have been. And so, in other words, it all gets back to our personal walk with Christ. And through that, the power of the cross comes through, and people know when it's sincere. They know when it's authentic. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul intentionally decided not to rely on any oratorical skills or natural ability or even his great intellectual ability and knowledge. The Corinthians needed to disconnect from their cultural affinities. That, that they were surrounded with this thing of, of the best way to express the philosophy and the fancy way to, to speak. And Paul's telling them, you guys need to Disconnect with that. That's the world. The power of the cross is, is ultimate, is so much higher than that. It can't compare. They once boasted in their patron. In the church, they boasted in their favorite preacher. They used to do a lot of things. We'll see later in the, in the letter that Paul's going to tell them don't uh, have no place in their new life in Christ. And what was the one message that would help them, as it helps us, make a break from those old patterns? It's the cross of Jesus. The message of the cross. This is where the testimony of God and all his unchangeable attributes that make up his character visibly are manifest in one place. Where we see the love of God, the justice of God, the grace of God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God the righteousness of God. The cross is where we die to the person we once were and are made new. This is the great need in our every life. It was once a clear message in our culture, culture the mystery that so many were familiar with. But today the message is lost in a slick presentation of many who desire to grow in numbers rather than making true disciples of Jesus Christ. The Lord commanded us to make disciples, not big churches of entertainment. If there's no conviction of sin, the cross is not being proclaimed. And without the proclamation of the cross, there's no salvation. We should not come to church to hear the pastor's opinion about politics. I know many of you would like that. And I'm quoting from somebody else. These aren't my words, this paragraph. Psychology, economics, or even religion. We should come to hear a word from the Lord through the pastor. God's word edifies and unifies Human opinions confuse and divide. Amen? One time a person, I remember before the service, meeting me in the, in the narthex there, and, and, and she asked me, do you preach a salvation message every Sunday? <laughs> yeah, I thought, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I don't preach the same salvation message every Sunday, but if somehow in there we're not connected with what Jesus did for us, we're missing the whole point. Amen? Um, she didn't stay long. It's the death of Jesus on the cross through that that we're cleansed and freed from the power of sin over our lives. It's by the death of Christ on the cross that we are reconciled to God and thereby have peace with him. In your notes, um, I think it's question five, you have this big, huge space there. That's because for the next five minutes, I'm going to be telling you from Scripture what the cross does for us as declared by the word of God. So let me start that again. It's by the death of Jesus on the cross that we're cleansed and freed from the power of sin over our lives. It's by the death of Christ on the cross that we're reconciled to God and thereby have peace with him. It's through the cross that we're justified. Jesus' death on the cross has eternally redeemed us. Amazingly, it's through the death of Jesus that we have the victory over death. His death on the cross also delivers us from condemnation. We are freed from the curse of the law, which is eternal separation from God. That means the cross has delivered us from judgment and the wrath to come. So are you starting to see why Paul wanted the whole fo focus of his ministry, of his preaching, to be on Jesus crucified for us? But there's a more, there's a lot more. Jesus' death delivers us from this present evil world. That doesn't mean he takes us out of it, but that he can keep us from being corrupted while in it. It's by the death of Jesus that Satan's power over the world and over death is broken and destroyed. It's by Jesus' death that we are healed. Jesus' death for us means there's no good thing that God will keep back from us. His death saves us, ungodly sinners who were enemies of God. And God uses the death of Jesus to draw all men to himself. The death of Jesus reveals the greatness of God's love for us. Jesus' death on the cross gives us access in prayer to the very throne room of God. That's what Jill was singing about while we took communion. Take me into the holy of holies. Take me in through the blood of the lamb. It frees us from self-centered life to find purpose for which God created us to be Christ-like. His death enables us to live a righteous life. And by his death, our consciences are cleared and we can bear fruit unto God. In the previous chapter, we saw that his death reveals the power and the wisdom of God. His death causes Jew and Gentile to be reconciled. And it's through his death that he was exalted to be Lord over the living and the dead. His death purchased his church, his bride. So do you think those are enough reasons to focus on Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross? Is the cross at the crossroad of your life? where you chose to follow Jesus at any cost. 
If it truly is, why would we ever be hesitant to say so? Those of us who have found new life in Jesus found it at the cross where he paid our sin debt and gave us his righteousness. It's humbling because we have to look at what our own sins deserved. But that's the foundation of our new life. Without the cross, we're doomed. Yeah, the world thinks it's foolish, but the hearts that God has plowed will hear the message and realize that we can start again as new creations in Jesus. We can be led by the Holy Spirit and not hesitate to share the wonderful truth that we have an op- when we have an opportunity. It's about Jesus, for from him and to him and through him are all things. If we want to share Christ with others, this dependency on the Spirit must be true of us as well. If we rely on anything other than Jesus and who he is, we will dilute the message. Logic and rhetoric can get in the way of the Spirit. And if we're relying on our own ability, we're handicapping ourselves. God draws souls to Jesus. And unless he's drawing them, all we can do is sow the seed of the word of God and pray that he stirs their hearts. Maybe then, maybe later. Verse three, and I was with you in weakness, in fear and much trembling. Paul was in one of the, when he wrote this, the people he was writing it to, and when he was with them, he was in Corinth, which was one of the most wicked cities in the Roman Empire. And he's proclaiming to them the only thing that could save the Corinthian souls. He knew the eternal importance of his mission. He knew he was conveying the very message of God and would be accountable for how he conveyed it. Instead of relying on his own strength, he relied completely on the Lord. In other passages, Paul uses the same phrase, fear and trembling, to indicate extreme urgency. You know, I used to read that and think he was scared or maybe he was nervous that he'd get stoned again or, you know, something like that. But when I see all the uses of Paul of fear and trembling, it has this tone of urgency. He recognized his inability to change hearts and minds. He knew how his flesh could get in the way. So he threw himself upon God, availing himself as an instrument in God's hands. The fear and trembling may also be due to the urgency he saw to preach the gospel in this pagan city while he had the chance. Because in the last few cities you read about in Acts, he was chased out of town. You know, he'd proclaim the gospel for a little bit and then he'd get chased out of town. And so there was this need to, I think he felt the need for how how much time do I have? How long am I gonna be able to do this? I gotta convey it as best as I can, as fast as I can. And that's why in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, we read about God's encouraging words to Paul. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Imagine how that much encouraged him. And a sigh of relief of, okay, I got some time here. And the next verse goes on to tell us he preached there for a year and a half. Hmm. 
Paul had learned from the Lord that when we're weak, we rely on his strength and he is our strength because we're leaning into his strength. And that's when the Holy Spirit grips hearts. Verse four and five, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The message had to be more than a mental argument or skilled persuasion. It had to come in the power of the Holy Spirit to go to hearts. He did not want them to rely on man's wisdom. If you can convince somebody to believe, someone else can convince them not to believe. But the power of Christ in the cross can save man's hearts. We teach information that, we mu that must be relayed, so there needs to be comprehension, but we can't rely on the information alone to save. The letter without the Spirit kills. But when the word comes with the Spirit, it gives life. The word cuts to the heart when it's inspired by God. If we trust in the wisdom of man, we'll eventually be disillusioned. Man will always let us down. But when our faith rests in the power of God, we may face discouragement. But in the end, we will find we made the only rational choice. Young D.L. Moody, one of the most famous evangelists in history, felt the call to God of God to preach. And so he went out and he, he looked for opportunities and he would preach. And his elders, the, the, men, the spiritual men that were over Moody said, Brother Moody, uh, we know you're giving it all you got, but I think you need to try an, another calling. That was probably the best thing that ever happened to Moody because it made him rely on the Holy Spirit. It made him look to God and ask God to work and to move through him. And, he, and God made him the famous evangelist that he was. What is the demonstration of the spirit and of power? With the Apostle Paul, it may have included miraculous signs that confirmed his message. We read about a number of those in Acts. But in all cases, when the truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross is proclaimed, the spirit can transform lives. Minds are renewed by the word of God. And all those benefits of the cross I mentioned earlier are made real in the recipient's lives. That's the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul was imitating his savior. The way of the world is to assert power and win arguments to prove our significance. But the way of Jesus is to give power away to make others significant. Upside down from the world. Jesus set aside his glory and limited his power to only do what the Father directed him. He humbled himself to only say what the Father told him to say. And in this abandonment of power and of his own glory, he even went to the cross in obedience to the Father. But that resulted in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He humbled himself to submitting himself even to the corrupt leaders of that time and the power-seeking Roman authorities. The world would say, look how foolish that was. Look, he, he died before his time. What a horrible death for him to suffer. 
How sad. What good did his submission and humility accomplish? Well, I'll tell you what. It accomplished the salvation of the world. Amen? It accomplished my salvation and yours. Paul followed the example of Christ. He had previously sought his own power and authority, and he was quickly gaining it. But on the road to Damascus, he encountered real glory, a glory much greater than that which the world offers. He was overwhelmed by the grace of the one who he was persecuting. The grace of Jesus shared his power and authority with Paul, the persecutor of Christians, and made him into one of the greatest heroes of the faith. Paul responded to that grace and mercy by doing what Jesus did for him. He began giving away power and authority. The world hoards power and authority. People of God give it away. We serve like Jesus served us, laying down his life on the cross. We die to ourselves that others might find life. We yield our authority to those God has placed over us even though we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Paul gave his authority away by assigning elders. Elders give their authority away by submitting to each other and by appointing new elders and by bowing to the leading of the Holy Spirit in prayer. The way of Jesus is upside down from the way this world uses power for personal gain. Because we are already valued by the ultimately powerful one, we use power as a means of valuing and caring for others. What Paul is trying to say is that the work of the cross is the most powerful expression of that upside-down picture. His power is displayed in our weakness, in our freely giving of ourselves, just as Jesus gave himself to us. Our wisdom is displayed in our recognition of how much we don't know. Our humility demonstrates we know the grace and wisdom of God. And this begs the question, do I have the humility and faith of the apostle who instead of asserting his apostolic authority pointed to his dependency on the cross of Jesus? Do I trust in my intellect and self-confidence or am I humbly submitted to the word of God and the Holy Spirit, knowing it was grace alone that saved me? The Corinthians were boasting in their favorite teacher. Paul was humbled before the cross of Jesus, totally dependent on him, him alone to serve others by pouring out his life as a living sacrifice. May we too humble ourselves before the wonder of the cross and allow the Spirit of God to touch others' lives through us. Amen.